Well, good evening, Hallows Church. Uh, my name is Andrew, and I serve as a pastor here. I have the privilege of walking us through our passage this evening, the passage that was just read for us a moment ago. But before I do that, let me just explain for a brief moment uh, why we do some of the things that we do when we gather together like this on a Sunday night. Uh, I don't know if you feel sometimes like you're engaging in some type of calisthenics, standing up, sitting down, standing up, sitting down. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Getting groups, praying. The reason why we do the things that we do when we gather together is because we believe we are gathered in this space at this time to worship Jesus simultaneously, and we do so together. Worship in the church isn't something that you come to observe. If you are a follower of Jesus, the worship that we engage in is it, it requires your participation. It requires my participation. We worship Jesus together. We do not step into a space like this to observe a show, to observe uh, something taking place on a stage. Worship of God's people that, is a, that it has occurred all throughout the history of humanity has always involved people's participation. We are engaging with our minds we are engaging with our mouths, we are engaging with our hearts, we are engaging with our bodies in this worship of Jesus. That's why we do some of the things that we do. That's why we invite you into space to do some of the things that we do on a Sunday night. Uh, because the, the richness of this time is not dependent upon me, it's not dependent upon whatever takes place on the stage or at a microphone what makes this time meaningful for every person involved is your participation. It is your leaning into this moment and listening and, and responding and contemplating and considering and praying and reading and, and just engaging God in this moment together. So with that said, let me invite you to open up your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, as we step into... Tonight's passage, continuing our journey through this letter, little letter under a series titled Indestructible Joy. And before we uh, kind of uh, dive into the actual content, let me voice one more prayer for us and then we will do so. Heavenly Father, as we are opening up your word right now, would your Holy Spirit open up our hearts? Would you give us grace to receive uh, truth from you? And would you give us grace to respond appropriately to that which we should respond to? Father, I pray that your people would be encouraged in this moment to live a life of ultimate purpose and ultimate passion. God, I pray that if somebody is in this room who does not yet know the Savior, I pray that you would awaken their heart to trust in the Savior, to find their identity in relationship to Christ. Lord, I ask and I pray that you would do uh, rich and marvelous things among us. In Jesus' name, amen. So about every two years or so nowadays, I think Apple's in this rhythm now where every two years they want to uh, release a new iPhone. And sometimes uh, I feel like they only give your iPhone about a two-year lifespan because they know they're about to come in with a new one. So by the time the new one comes out, your previous generation is winding down, so you're forced to buy something new. But in any case, these new phones are coming out every couple of years. And with every couple of years, there are changes being made to the phone, uh, different technology, different format, various things that they revise about the phone to hopefully uh, make the phone work better and to make the, the, your experience with the iPhone more enjoyable. 
And it's always fun when those times roll around to kind of read through commentary and, and different reviews that's available online of folks who are really into that scene, comparing and contrasting all the differences and the upgrades, and some of, some of whom uh, love the changes, others abhor the changes. It's just a really fun conversation for me to uh, listen in on. It's not really one I can contribute to because I'm not really wired in that world, but I like to listen to other people talk about the changes made to those types of phones. But one, one thing I've never read as I've read through some commentaries and reviews of the new iPhones that come out every other year or so is I've never read anyone talk about how this iPhone is very useful as a doorstop. I've never heard or read anyone talk about, you know, this phone, it's a pretty good size to wedge under a door, to keep a door open, to allow people to move in and out of a space freely and fluidly, and it works really effective as a doorstop. I've never heard a review or read a commentary that has said, uh, you know, this iPhone, because it's so flat and smooth, it's, and it has a, if you've put a little case on it, it gives you a little, a little lip that you can kind of, you can scrape some butter out of a container and spread it across your toast really, really well. It's a very good, uh, it's very useful in that sense. I've never heard anyone describe an iPhone and its effectiveness and its uh, benefits in those types of ways. Now, instinctively, you and I know that if we're resourceful people, we can use the iPhone if you wanted to. You could use it for those reasons. You could use an iPhone as a doorstop. You could use it to spread butter on your toast. But you know as well as I do that if you're using an iPhone for those purposes, you are not maximizing the... You, if you're using a phone for those types of reasons and those types of purposes, you know that you're not engaging it in the way the creators intended. And as a result its highest potential will not be achieved and your deepest satisfaction in interacting with that phone is not going to be realized. You see, our highest potential, anything's highest potential is achieved and greatest satisfaction is experienced when whatever we're talking about is used according to its design or it's used in compliance with its creator's intent. And this is true of everything. This is true of everything that we see and interact with on a day-to-day basis. If you consider what it means to be human, you and I were created, according to the Bible's perspective, you and I were created in the image of God, meaning we were wired for a relationship with God. And if that is so, then our highest potential and our deepest satisfaction will not be realized and will not be experienced unless we are engaging the purpose for which we were created. And sometimes when you talk about finding your purpose, finding your identity in relationship with your creator's design and with your creator's intent, sometimes we draw false conclusions that say, well, that seems so restrictive, it seems so confining, it seems like it might limit uh, the life we can live in the here and now, it limits our life experiences, but I would argue that nothing is further from the truth. You see, freedom is not the limitation, or freedom is not the absence of limitations. Freedom is the liberty to pursue uh, your intent or your purpose. Freedom is the liberty to pursue that which you were created for. And I believe we're stepping into a passage tonight that really puts this idea squarely before us as we consider how our greatest potential is reached and our deepest satisfaction is experienced when we are embracing God's design, we are embracing God's intent, we are leaning into the reality for which we were 
created. And I know that that's an idea that might seem kind of lofty, it might seem kind of airy, it might seem kind of abstract. It's one of those ideas that every one of us maybe might even agree to conceptually. We might think, yeah, that's true, but, but actually and, and practically, and when we get down into the earth and into the weeds of things, we might start wondering, well, what does it really mean to live, uh, to embrace God's intent and purpose for our lives? What does it really mean to lean into that reality? And, and so sometimes we, have a hesit- we hesitate asking the question of why. We, have the hes- we hesitate to really explore this idea of an ultimate purpose and and I know many of us, again, instinctively consider, yes, if we exist, we exist for a reason. There has to be some purpose, but not everybody believes that. And in fact, I came across an article as I was reading, reflecting upon this text, an article that was published back in the 80s by Life magazine. If you don't know what Life magazine is, it's probably because uh, you were born at a certain earlier date than myself. But Life magazine does not exist anymore. But there was a time when, when it did, it published an article on the meaning of life. And it was asking the big question of why, and it was asking the big question of why to all types of people coming from all types of angles in response to that question and in answering that question. And really, if you just kind of boil down all the responses that I read, which there were many in this article, they all kind of fell in one of two lanes. And you can kind of hear the difference if you just consider some of the examples I've I've pulled for you. In this article, there was a taxi driver by the name of Jose Martinez. This is what he said about the meaning of life, about the purpose of our existence, about why we're here. Get this. He said, you know, we're here just to die. We're here to live and to die. He said, I drive a cab. I do some fishing, take my girl out, pay taxes, do a little reading, and then just get ready to drop dead. It's not really the type of article and quote I'm reading to my kids at night to really get them fired up for life and... But then there was a humorist by the name of Garrison Keillor. You've perhaps heard him on NPR and some other things. But he said, you know, we exist to know and to serve God. That was his response in the very next line. But then there's a a paleontologist by the name of Stephen J. Gould who put it this way. In response to the question, why do we exist? Why are we here? Is there a transcendent purpose? Is there a transcendent passion? He says, Well, we are here because one odd group of fishes had a peculiar fin anatomy that could transform into legs for terrestrial, terrestrial (laughs) creatures that can walk on land. Because the earth never froze entirely during an ice age. Because a small and tenuous species arising in Africa a quarter of a million years ago has managed so far to survive by hook and by crook. We may yearn for a higher answer, but none exists. This explanation, though superficially troubling, is not, if not terrifying, is ultimately liberating and exhilarating. He said, we cannot read the meaning of life passively in the facts of nature. We must, get this, we must construct these answers ourselves. And then lastly, there was a guy by the name of Mike Ditka. Perhaps you've heard of him, legendary coach of the Chicago Bears. He put it this way. He said, I believe we're here for a reason, created by somebody to live for somebody and to return to somebody. I believe that I'm created by God to do the job that he's given me while I'm here to serve him and then to return to him. So if we're going to say that our highest potential is achieved and our greatest satisfaction is experienced when we're living according to our created intent or a created purpose, we need to resolve to figure out which one of those lanes that we're going to run in. 
Because there were two options there as it related to purpose, as it relates to uh, your design and your intent. On one hand, you might say there is no transcendent purpose, there is no transcendent meaning, therefore, what's my, what's my, uh, what's my only response? Well, then your response will be to create your own meaning and to create your own purpose, to build your own reality. That's one lane that any one of us could slide into and run on. But then another lane that we might slide into and run on is the, is the lane that we're going to see, I believe, projected by Paul in the book of Philippians. And it is the, it is the lane that says, I'm going to embrace God's purpose for me. I'm going to embrace God's created intent for my life. I'm not going to try to create my own meaning or purpose. I'm going to lean into and submit to his. This is a perspective that says I was created by God and for God. It's a perspective that realizes with a guy by the name of Augustine many years ago when he said we were created by God and for God and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. And so Paul here, I believe in the book of Philippians, is someone who's landed on the, in that lane and that's the lane he's running into the future on. And so I just want to encourage you tonight to consider which lane you are currently in. Are you living a life in this world trying to create your own meaning, create your own purpose? Or are you in a lane that says, I'm going to embrace God's purpose and God's intent for me? And that's a question every, all of us needs to consider, even if right now you consider yourself a follower of Jesus. You carry the label Christian. You say, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus. I trust in the gospel. Because there is a tug on your heart, and there will always be a tug on your heart to slide over into that other lane to begin to try to step out of the lane for which you were intended to run in and live on and maybe slide into this other lane where you start creating your own purposes, creating your own realities, trying to do things your own way. There's always that tug. And so we always, even as followers of Jesus, want to revisit this question, why are we here? So we can make sure we have both feet in the appropriate lane and running into the future accordingly. So here in Philippians chapter 1, what I want us to look at is just basically... I want to contrast those two approaches with four aspects of life that Paul is facing in this text. Two, four aspects of life that Paul is facing in this text. Now, two of them are going to reach back into last week's passage, and they're going to deal with some content that we've already covered. But then two uh, are nestled within tonight's passage, but they are this. I want us to consider how the difference these, these two approaches have on our relationship with Changing circumstances, our relationship with the success of other people, our relationship kind of with the weight of our lives or the weight of our desires, and then I want us to consider our relationship with the inevitability of death. Again, all four of these are present in, the, in this passage, two of which hearkening back to last week's. So let's think about the first. Let's think about changing circumstances. So if you've been on this journey with us, you know that Philippians was written by the Apostle Paul. Paul met Jesus in a dramatic kind of way. He came to believe that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Lord. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the very reason for his existence and the source of his salvation. He trusted in Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection, and that changed the trajectory of his life forever. 
And so he lived his life trying to make Jesus known, introducing Jesus to many people. That was, that was the lane that he ran in, saying, I was created by God, I'm saved by God's grace, and I want more and more people to come to an understanding of that reality. So he gave his life to that purpose. He gave his life to doing precisely that which Jesus told him to do when Jesus encountered him in Acts chapter 9. He says, now Paul, I want you to go and make the gospel known to all people everywhere. And so Paul began to travel all throughout the known world, traveling to different metropolitan areas, making Jesus known in starting churches in all kinds of cities. So he was a traveler. He was a go-getter. He was highly active, highly in a high-capacity leader. But then when he was writing Philippians, you don't find Paul traveling. You don't find him moving around. You don't find him engaging in life the way that he had come to engage in life after meeting Jesus. Instead, he's writing this letter from a prison cell. His life has come to a halt. His circumstances have changed. He's no longer free to move about the known world doing that which Jesus told him to do. His life is now in a prison cell, and he's wondering, well, what does this mean for my purpose? Well, again, Paul's the type of guy who has embraced God's purpose for his life. He's leaning into the Creator's intent for him. And so he says, well, if I'm in prison, I'm going to trust that God has purpose in me being here. And so he says earlier in chapter tw uh, verse 12 of chapter 1, he says, I want you to know, talking to his original readers in Philippi, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And he's engaging this new circumstance with, from a gospel perspective, saying my purpose has not changed. My calling has not been revoked. I am here and I'm going to make much of Jesus, even if it means doing so in a prison cell. So since this was a guy who had embraced his God-given purpose and God-given intent for his life, his life then was not derailed by a change in his circumstances. And this is why when you would get down to verse 18, at the end of verse 18, uh, where he talks about rejoicing and he says, yes, and I will rejoice, this, this is where he's coming from. How can he rejoice when it seems as though his life can no longer do what it, he previously did? Well, he can because his life is a is marked and characterized by a, a purpose that transcends circumstance, a purpose that transcends the changes that inevitably come not only to him, but to every other person in the world. One thing I guarantee, I guarantee for all of you, there, there's one thing true of each of us, that whatever situation we are in right now, that situation will not be the same forever. Circumstances change. And if we're not embracing God's design and intent for our lives, then we are going to lose the reason for our existence when those circumstances do change. Or to put it another way, if you are living your life and you're running in the lane where you're trying to create your own purpose, then you become subject to every change that will inevitably occur. You will have no stability in your soul you will have no source for an indestructible joy because you will be pushed around by the, your ever-evolving or sometimes devolving circumstances of life in a fallen world. So how we relate to changing circumstances is practically affected by which lane we are running in. If we're trying to create our own reality, we will be subject to the winds of change. But if we're embracing and leaning into our God-given purpose, we find ourselves swept up in a reality that says, you know, your circumstances may change, but they do not have to derail the reason for your existence. You consider an athlete who might say, you know, I was, 
My, my purpose in life is to succeed on the football field or the soccer field or the baseball field, whatever your sport of choice is. And so they've given themselves to that purpose. They are drawing meaning and life from that aspect of life in this world. What do you do when you blow out your knee? What do you do when the coach benches you for someone better than you? What do you do when you turn 35 and you can't do the things you once did when you were 25? Is there a purpose that is characterizing your life that can transcend every age that you have? That you that you become in this world. Well, see how the, there's a big practical difference between how you respond to changing circumstances depending on what lane you are running in. Paul is a guy who's running in the lane of his God-given purpose. And because of that, he sees reason and purpose in all that he's doing. And anytime his circumstances change, his reason for existence does not But then you consider not only changing circumstances, you you consider the success of other people. Also, when you get into verses 15 through 18, if you remember from last week, there was a situation where there was others who began to do the types of things that Paul was doing when when he was in prison. Others began to step up to the microphone and proclaim the Christ and proclaim the gospel. And he points out in verse 15 that some of them are doing it out of envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill, saying some people are doing it out of impure motives. But then he would go on to say, and some of them even have like some weird competition and rivalry with him when you look at verse 17. He says, the former proclaimed Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but get this, thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. They they have some personal agenda against Paul, and that's driving what they're doing. But notice what Paul responds with in verse 18. What then? Only in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I'm going to rejoice. In that, I'm going to celebrate. In that, I'm going to boast. If Christ is being proclaimed, if the gospel is being platformed, I don't care if people are doing it as a, in some kind of sick, twisted way of, of taking, knocking me down a few notches. I just want Christ proclaimed. That's my purpose. And since he has, had embraced his God-given purpose and his God-given design, that has enabled him to celebrate God's grace in the proclamation of the gospel regardless of who it was coming from. He was able to celebrate grace. He was able to, not only to celebrate it, he was also able to pray for it. When you look earlier in verses 3 through 11 and he's praying for the church, some of these people he's referring to are part of the church. And yet Paul is still praying for them. He's praying that they'll grow up. He's praying that they'll mature. He's praying that they'll change, but he's still praying for them. But all that to say is Paul is not threatened by them. He's not viewing other people and their rising influence, other people and the success they may be having doing similar things as he. He's not viewing them as a threat to his identity or a threat to his role in the world. He just wants Christ to be proclaimed. You see, the issue of you and I, when we begin to run in the lane where we're trying to create our own reason, we're trying to create our own purpose, what happens is whatever we are, however it is we're defining our purpose and we're defining our success, however that is being decided upon, if ever we come across another person who's doing similar things, we're not going to be able to love them or to celebrate God's grace in them. Instead, we're going to view them as a threat. We're going to view them as competition. We're going to compete with them and then we're going to start comparing ourselves with them and, and all that does is lead us into unflattering conclusions of either pride, maybe you find that you are better than them at something, Or shame, you discover that they're better than you at something. 
But pride or shame, neither one of those outcomes is appropriate to a person who's leaning into the gospel, leaning into their creator's intent for their lives. God did not create us to grow in pride or shame. He's created us to enjoy relationship with him and to press into the calling he has put upon us to make Jesus known. So you might consider your social circle and your friend group, you might be considered the funny guy. You might be considered the smart gal. You might be considered the charismatic leader. But then what happens if somebody else is introduced into the group? Somebody else comes along and tries to get into that social circle, but they seem to be more They seem to be funnier than you or more charismatic than you or they perhaps are smarter than you. And all of a sudden, people aren't turning to you for the counsel that they once turned to you for. They're turning to someone else. How 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 does your heart respond in that moment? Is your joy destroyed? Does your joy deplete? Well, if you're creating your own purpose and meaning based on who you are as it relates to something that's tied to this world, your joy will deplete. Your purpose will wane. But if you're embracing God's created, God's purpose for you, and if you're humbly seeing God's grace not only in you, but even in others in different kinds of ways, you will find yourself celebrating that. And you will find yourself even praying for that. One of the interesting things about this text, when you get into verse 19, Paul says, for I know, referring to his situation, actually referring to his, the ultimate outcome of his life, he refers to his deliverance. And we'll talk about that in a moment, but listen to what he said, or later, let me, but listen to what he says first. He says, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, and he appeals to those two dynamics, the prayers of other people and the help of the Spirit of Christ that is given to him. If you view other people as a threat to you, you are not going to, uh, if you view other people as a threat to you, then you are not going to pray for other people and you're not going to celebrate God's grace at work in the lives of other people. And so we want to recognize how, how suffocating it is to create our own purpose as it relates to how we view other people, viewing them as threats to be uh, taken down rather than people to be loved and served, which brings us into that next category. So you have changing circumstances, you have the success of others, but then you get into the next two, starting in verse 19 all the way down to verse 26, and the, first one being the, the third one then being the weight of our lives. The weight of our lives. And the idea is this. If you and I are creating our own purpose and trying to derive our own meaning, running in that lane, then life, we will find, will not be able to hold the freight of our desires. We will collapse under the dissatisfaction that that which we are seeking satisfaction from can bring. A great contrast of this was found in a uh, movie, again, it's back in the 80s. I don't know, I'm on an 80s kick lately, but I was born in 1980, maybe that's why. But in 1982, the best picture of the year, 1982, was a film called Chariots of Fire. Perhaps you've seen it. If you haven't seen it, I would highly recommend it. But this is a st- true story about a couple of Olympic runners. And the main character is a guy by the name of Eric Liddell. And Eric Liddell was a guy who loved to run. And when he was asked why he runs the way that he did, why did he train so hard, and why was he seeking to accomplish by entering the Olympics and running the, I think it was a 100-meter dash, he, he put it this way. He says, you know, because God made me fast, I run. And when I run, I feel God's pleasure. 
He's saying, I am a happy man when I'm running for the glory of God, when I'm pressing into the design that God has made me. He's made me fast, so I'm going to run. I'm going to run for God's glory. But don't twist that. When he talks about running for God's pleasure, he's, he's getting after, he says, if I'm going to run, that's why I'm going to run. I'm going to run for the pleasure of God. But if you know Liddell's story, you know that had he blown out his knee, his purpose would not have changed. Because his accent would fall on the glory of God, the joy that he found honoring God in whatever he was doing. So if it was running or whether it was hanging with his family, he wanted to honor God. That was his ultimate purpose. And, that's which, and he wanted to do whatever would bring God pleasure. But then there was another character in the story, a guy by the name of Harold Abrams, who was also a runner. But he didn't share that perspective. He was a guy, Liddell being a Christian, the other guy was not a Christian. When he was asked the same question, why do you run? Why do you do what you do? This is what he said. He said, well, that, when that gun goes off, I have 10 seconds in which to prove the reason of my existence. And even then, I'm not sure I will. I have 10 seconds to prove the reason or to justify my existence. But even then, I'm not sure I will. Even if I crossed the finish line faster than anyone else, I'm not sure I would have satisfied my desire to have a justified life, to have a meaningful life, to have a purposeful life. That's incredible insight. It's incredible insight for that guy to say, you know, I may accomplish my goal and yet still be dissatisfied. It's incredible insight into the human condition. And we've seen that narrative play out time and time and time again. We've read stories, no doubt, of people who've reached the pinnacle of their profession, the pinnacle of their career. We've seen them do incredible things and yet reach the mountaintop only to turn around and find everything's so that there's something still missing. You take, you take, for example, a guy by the name of Jack Higgins, who is an, who's an author, wrote over 60 novels, many of which, I think, if not all 60, were bestsellers. So he, he attained incredible success in his career, but then he was asked in an interview, what do you know now that you wish you would have known when you were younger, when you were a boy? And Higgins replied in that interview, well, I wish I knew that when you get to the top, there's nothing there. When you get to the top, there's nothing there. His successes, his achievements could not hold the weight of his life, the weight of his desires. There was something still lacking. It's not unlike C.S. Lewis's famous statement when he says, if I find in myself a desire, if I find in myself a desire of which no experience in life or in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. The most probable, rational, reasonable, logical explanation is we were created for a world that's not like this. We were created for a greater world. And he would go on to say, we were created for God. So if we're trying to create our own purpose and carve out our own re reason and find our own meaning as we're journeying through this world, we're going to live our life in this unceasing cycle of dissatisfaction as we discover that everything that we may look to for satisfaction is falling flat. Our lives can't hold the weight of our desires. But then you consider Paul's example in this text. Paul has embraced God's, his God-given purpose, his creator's intent for his life. He says as much in verse 21. In that powerful 
verse, one of the most, perhaps the most popular verse in all of the book of Philippians. This is one that, that many people have heard of. It's one that many people love, but it's one that I really want us to consider. This is what he says in verse 21, just summarizing the reason for his existence, the purpose of his life. He says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He says, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is someone who's embracing that which God has for him. And what's interesting about that verse is that there are no verbs in the original language of the New Testament. So if you just read it directly from the Greek, it would say, for me to live Christ, to die gain. For me to live Christ, to die gain. There's no verbs because it's not so much about what he's doing. It's about who he is. It's about Christ engulfing his life, Christ engulfing his existence. He cannot see himself or define himself apart from the reality of Christ. For me to live Christ. That's what he's saying. And he's embracing his God-given purpose. Now, if you're wondering, well, what does that look like practically? How does that affect the weight of our lives? Well, you keep reading in the passage, he'll tell us. This is what it means to, to, for him to live as Christ. Verse 22 He says, if I am to live in the flesh, meaning if I'm going to continue on in this world, that means fruitful labor for me. That means there's more work to be done, fruitful labor. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But look at verse 24. He says, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. So to live is Christ means for Paul to, if he's in this world, if he's journeying through this world any further, he's going to live with the purpose of blessing the people around him fruitful labor, loving and serving people and leading them into boasting in Jesus, that others would come to find the reason for their existence. He's going to lead people into that reality. And he says, if I'm here, if if I wake up tomorrow, I'm waking up tomorrow, Christ, I'm going to others on his behalf. I'm going to go to others and, and show them the beauty of Jesus and introduce them to the gospel so that they might progress and find their joy in the faith so that more and more people may have ample cause to glory in Christ. So for Paul, as he's embracing his God-given purpose and the, in God's intent for his lives, if he's saying to live as Christ, he's saying, I'm living for the sake of those around me. I'm living for other people's benefit, not my own. He even says as much. He says, it would be better for me if I left this world and I went to be with Christ. That's better by far. But he says, if I'm here, there are people for me to love. There are people for me to serve. There are people for me to bless in the name of Jesus. I'm to lead them into boasting and glorying in the reality for which they were created. Seeing themselves in relationship with Christ. And he says that, you know, This is all fruitful labor. It doesn't mean that engaging in that purpose and living out God's intent for his life is going to be easy. It doesn't mean he's going to not wake up some days and not want to get out of bed because maybe he's got a headache from being beaten up the day before. That happened to Paul many times. It doesn't mean that every day is going to be easy and every day is going to be uh, soft and blissful, but it does mean that every day he wakes up, he has reason to do so. And it does mean that whatever hardship he endures in this world, those hardships will not be wasted. 
That everything he gives his life to will not be in vain. And so many times when we try to come up with our life purpose, if we're tempted to slide into the other lane where we're creating our own meaning and we try to write that sentence, you know, for me to live is, and we try to fill in the blank, we fill in the blank with so many alternatives that in the end render our lives wasted. And the reason those things render our lives wasted is because when you get to the end of your life and you start seeing the inevitability of death, There's nothing that you can put in that first blank that will render the second clause true for you. There's nothing that you can put in that blank apart from Christ where death then will be gain. Anything else you live for, anything else you put in that blank, death then becomes loss. If you say for me to live is sex, when you die, you're not having sex anymore. If you say, for me to live is family, when you die, you're not in that moment going to have family anymore. If you say, for me to live is my career, when you die, you have no job anymore. If you say, for me to live is my friendships, as good and as wonderful as friendships and family are, when you die, you can't carry those with you. If that is the summation of your life, death for you will always be loss. But if you and I come around to seeing things from Paul's perspective. And if we get to this moment where we say for us to live as Christ, then death for us, even death, the inevitability of death will be gain. And so we want to embrace God's purpose and God's intent because when we do, everything then has meaning. Everything then has reason. Everything then has value. Everything then has purpose. This is Paul's perspective. That's why he's writing words that fly in the face of our American culture that idolizes comfort and our American culture that idolizes career and success, our American culture that idolizes hedonistic pleasures. All of that Paul is writing in this letter flies in the face of that because for him to live is Christ. And since life for him is Christ, death for him is gain. Christ is the only purpose for existence that can render death profitable where when you die you die a winner it's a strange way that paul is talking about death in this text he's not talking about death in a way that anybody talks about death he's saying that that in light of the gospel in light of everything that jesus lived for died for rose from the grave for and guarantees for his people when we die death then becomes our servant death is the usher who brings us into the presence of god That's what he's pointing out, saying because of that, death is gain. When he says early in verse 19, when he refers to his deliverance, when he says, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, that word deliverance is referring to his ultimate vindication. His ultimate vindication before God is a word that could also be translated salvation. And the phrase there is an exact quote from the Greek translation of Job chapter 13, verse 16 in the Old Testament. This moment where Job is talking about, or he's responding to these voices that have clamoring in his life, saying, look, your life is vain, your life is in sin, all this bad stuff is happening to you, there is no hope for you. And he says something very similar, that all of this is going to work towards my deliverance. And Job would say in his book, in response to these voices, no, my life will be vindicated. And what Paul is saying in this verse, echoing that phrase, my life will be vindicated. None of my sufferings will be in vain. Nothing that I lose in this life is ultimately loss. I will be delivered. I will be vindicated. This is what he's getting after because he understands that in the face of an inevitable death, 
Death for him is gain. So with these thoughts in mind, what, what does all this mean for us practically? What does this mean for those of you in this room right now who you don't consider yourself a Christian? You're not a follower of Jesus. You don't believe the gospel. But perhaps you've come to a point in your life and you've said this time and time again, you know, I, I just want to live my life and be happy. I just want to be happy. And so that's your goal. That's your ambition. And that's a noble goal and a noble ambition. I want you to be happy too. But I want to ask you the question, you want to be happy doing what? You want to be happy in what? See, happiness is not a goal. It's a byproduct. Happiness is a byproduct of something else that is going on in your life. And so if you want to be happy, you've got to understand that happiness is not a goal. It's a byproduct. So the question is, do you want to be happy doing what? And if you are intent on building your own meaning, building your own purpose, and finding happiness in that lane, then I would encourage you to consider how you will live your life subject to chance. You will live your life subject to change. If you live your life in that lane, then you might not have any meaningful relationships because you're going to have a tendency to view other people and their successes as a threat to you. You're going to live your life comparing and contrasting with those around you. You're not going to see other people as those to love and to serve. You're going to see them as people you should compete with and compare yourself to. If you say, well, what about uh, how dissatisfied I am in life? You're going to find yourself, I think, waking up one day and all that you've given yourself to in this world is just not... It's just not doing it for you. It's just not doing it for you. And then in the end, when you face the inevitability of death, I believe when you do die, death for you will not be gain. Death for you will be loss. I think death for you will be a loss. I want you to be happy too. But I don't think you can be happy running in the lane where you're trying to create your own meaning and create your own purpose. You're not that good. You're not that powerful. You're not that wise. You're not that talented. You won't be that successful. In other words, you're not God. So if you, because you're not God, you cannot create your own meaning. And you cannot create your own purpose. You are a creature just like me. You are a finite just like me. You are limited just like me. So we have to look outside of ourselves for meaning and for purpose, for reason, and ultimately for joy. And then I would also tell you, if you're not a follower of Jesus who just wants to be happy, I I do want to assure you, I want you to be happy too, but I want you to know that your life is infinitely valuable and I don't want you to settle for a cause that is not worthy of it. Your life is far more valuable than you realize. Don't settle for a cause. Don't settle for a reason. Don't settle for a purpose that is not worthy of you. You were created by God and for God. Lean into the reality of God in faith Humbly, as a child, trusting God and stepping into a community of faith where you can explore these realities and see who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for you. So if you're not a Christian, let me just encourage you to step into a relationship with God. And uh, I, I mean, there's really no beating around the bar. I, I would like for you to become a Christian. I would like for you to meet Jesus. I would like for you to know the God who made you. I believe he loves you like crazy and he has a reason for your existence and I really want you to realize that. But then for those of you who are Christians, what does all this mean for you? What do all these thoughts, how do they apply to you? I think if we start thinking along these lines, 
And if we resist the temptation from, of sliding into the other lane where we try to, come, even as Christians, create our own meaning or our own purpose, if we can resist that temptation, you're going to become one of the most winsome and fascinating persons on the planet. You will be given the resources to live a winsome life. You will be given the resources to live a life that causes others to stand, back, stand up and scratch their heads wondering, how are you responding to that like that? How are you doing that? Well, how, yes, I see you weeping, but there's something different about the way you're weeping. You seem, you seem to be weeping with a sense of hope. You, you tend to be weeping with a sense of, of something beyond that which you're weeping over. There, there's just something different even in the way that you weep. You become a winsome, fascinating person when you run in the lane that God has intended you to run in. It's one way to think about all of this is to consider the game of chess. I don't know if you play chess. I've never really been into chess. My limitation, my experience with chess centers on every laptop I've ever bought uh, because that's pretty much the game that's on there. It comes preloaded, and that's the game I try to figure out, but I'm always playing against a computer, and I never win. But if you've ever played chess and you know the premise of chess, you know that the whole ambition, the whole design of the game is for you to move your pieces in such a way where you put your opponent's king in checkmate. And when you put your opponent's king in checkmate, what does that mean? That means your opponent has no more moves to make. Your opponent cannot do anything to change the outcome of the game. You have him in checkmate. You win. Well, one of the interesting things about Paul's perspective and of Paul's example in this text is that Paul's living a life and he's writing words that lead us to believe that he's got the world in checkmate. I mean, you just consider Paul's story. He's suffering in prison, but he's still rejoicing. He's suffering in prison, but he's still rejoicing. He understands that that his sufferings will only drive him deeper into his fellowship with Christ. He'll say as much in Philippians chapter 3. The outcome of his trial could have led to his execution. And he says, well, if you kill me, guys, that's cool. I'm going to be with Christ. For me to die is gain. Then you have the other potential outcome. What if they let him go free? What if they let him to continue living? He says, okay, if you let me out, I'm going to go tell people about Jesus. I'm going to continue leaning into my purpose. I'm going to press into the creator's intent for me. I'm going to live that out. I'm going to serve Christ. So he's saying, if you, if you hurt me, I'm going to rejoice because hurting me is going to drive me into identifying even further with Jesus. If you kill me, that's cool. I'll be with Jesus. If you let me go free, that's cool. I'm going to live for Jesus. I'm going to serve Jesus. To live is Christ. Paul's got the world in checkmate. There's nothing the world can do to him. And if you are in Christ right now, you too have the world in checkmate. You too have the world in checkmate. The world cannot do anything to reverse the course and the trajectory of your life with God. Your purpose can be realized regardless of what situation or circumstance you find yourself in. Your purpose can be realized regardless of what tense relationships you might have with other people. Your purpose can be realized regardless of how, uh, how you've discovered how dissatisfying aspects of life in this world can be. Your purpose can be realized even if you're on your deathbed in the hospital. You too can realize your purpose because in Christ, we've got the world in checkmate. And so that means for us who are followers of Jesus, who are in Christ, that gives us a resource to live winsome lives, it gives us resource to live a free life. And as Paul's in prison, we said last week that Paul's the freest man in the Roman Empire. And if you are in Christ right now, you are the freest people in the city of Seattle. 
You are the freest people on the face of the planet because in Christ you have the world in checkmate. So let's embrace God's purpose for our lives. Let's lean into the creator's intent and design for us, namely to know him through Christ and to make him known. Let's pray. God, you are a relational God and we love you and we recognize that we were created in your image and as a result, we are relational creatures. And I pray, God, that we would step into our relationship with you, lean into that purpose for our lives and that you, God, would give us grace that as long as we're alive in this world, we would make you known and lead other people to find their joy and their happiness and their identity in relationship with you. God, we thank you for sending your son Jesus to live and to die and to rise again. Thank you for the life he gives us. Thank you for the hope that we have in him. And I pray that your people would lean into that deeply tonight. And I pray that all in Jesus' name, amen.